podcast. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to three old reformed dudes commiserate. <laughs> anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve at a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written a number of books. I've been a professor of philosophy. My most recent book is In the House of Tom Bombadil. Glenn, why don't you tell us about yourself? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, and my next book is on the verge of being out if it's not out already. It's called 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. Yeah, that's a great, great title and a great subject for a book. And if you don't have it yet, get out and get it. Anyway, uh, Tom, tell us about yourself and introduce, uh, introduce us to the subject of this of the show. We're going to be talking about a guy named Jacques. Yep, a guy named Jacques. Well, I am not Jacques. <laughs> I'm Tom Price. I'm a theologian. I teach ethics and philosophy as well. I'm working on a book in moral theology currently. And, you know, one of the... Uh, I guess, uh, figures that I engage quite often, and we do on this podcast, is Jacques Ellul. Um, and I'll talk a little more about it. But they, what I'm going to be talking about today is um, his, well, I'm going to be covering Ellul's um, critical engagement with Western civilization um, and one of his works in particular called The Betrayal of the West, and he has an epilogue that has a great title, Those Whom God Wishes to Destroy, He First Makes Mad. And so the title, of course, of that epilogue uh, is Eliel's Appropriation um, of something, of course, is sort of a Christian variation of a line that came from pagan antiquity. And I think versions of it um, can even be back uh, go back to um, Socrates and, and others. I think uh, one famous version of it was with the god Jupiter, right? Um, those who make, uh, they, those whom Jupiter wishes to destroy, he first makes mad. Um, and I think Rousseau actually even used this this line for something. Um, and uh, so I, I don't think any it's, of that escaped El Yul. <laughs> So that's even apropos. It's right once in a while. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's apropos. The man, the man who was insane knew he was insane and knew that God was out to get him. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I and I do think that uh, none of that uh, went went over on El Yul. <laughs> um, so a bit more about El Yul, maybe to give people a little background. He was a French uh, theologian, sociologist, um, yeah, historian. And I, and I believe he was uh, also a, a law professor, a professor of jurisprudence. Um, and uh, he, in the, uh, the 60s in particular, late 50s and 60s, uh, he became very uh, popular in terms of the, um, well, well, his name became known, maybe is a better way of putting it, in, in the U.S. Um, his publication of a work called The Presence of the Kingdom, that was, I think, his introduction. And in the 60s, he had some sociological works that, that addressed some, some theological stuff. But you had the technological society, which we talk, talked about, propaganda we've talked about, and the political illusion. Was, I think it was a trilogy um, that, he, that he put together. And then he had several uh, theological works. I'll, I'll list a couple of them. Um, the Meaning of the City was a big one. Um, false presence uh, of the kingdom, uh, the judgment of Jonah, the politics of God and the politics of man, 
hope in a time of abandonment, violence, reflections from a Christian perspective. Yeah, uh, Politics of God, Politics of Man was the book that introduced me to Lula, and he just blew my mind. Yeah. Um, he took, uh, you know, First uh, and Second Kings and made it really sing, made those works really sing in ways that I had never seen anybody uh, make them sing before. And he, he was kind of the Marshall McLuhan of, of France. You know, he had a lot of the same, I think, uh, things to say, uh, he was also a Reformed theologian, not just a theologian, but a Reformed theologian. And, you know, that's odd or sort of significant in France, you know, yeah. uh, where, where that kind of puts him in sort of the, the panoply of, it, of French uh, thought. And um, I think uh, he uh, is still very significant. I mean, it's not as though his influence is fading. I think yeah. I think many of his insights have been vindicated. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think Alul is uh, a guy people should uh, get to know if they don't know him already. Yeah, and, and I think that he had he trekked sort of from they started out, I think, in nominal Catholicism, becomes an atheist and then becomes a Marxist and eventually uh, gets over to being reformed. And it is fascinating. I think it, it will make a little more sense, kind of his commitments and his challenges that he did take um, that reform direction um, in that time. I think it, it provided him also with a lot of resources he wouldn't have had otherwise at that time and um, and are still pertinent. But yet he had a, a few other works. He did two works also in theological ethics, The Will and To Do. This is a kind of telling title. And then The Ethics of Freedom. Um, but one of the things I think we've done on the show before is really talked about his hermeneutic of reading Western culture and how important that is. It, he is richly insightful, uh, prescient, as as you know, we'll see a little bit later. And maybe prophetic is is another term that uh, you know we could we could run with. And um, his you know, and his theological response is on one hand very brilliant and insightful as well, but it is also limited by the kind of the, the options he had kind of to, to work with. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but he is sort of second to none in terms of the insight um, that he, the alarm bells he was ringing. And I think one of the reasons his voice was um, so significant and continues to be is he he saw it from the extremes of both sides. He saw the the kind of hyper right wing reaction that really didn't escape the same set of assumptions, but he saw it as he saw the kind of end result in particular of the intellectual elites and the leftism. And so this is also kind of a great follow up to last week's episode with uh, with uh, Glenn doing um, Chesterton's uh, uh, story, um, the man who was Thursday, because I think you're going to see a lot of a lot of places there's over overlap. Isn't it interesting though that so many great conservative minds were are converted Marxists? Yeah. You, you think about you know Alistair McIntyre, you think about Christopher Lash, you think about Jacques Ellul. I mean, the best the best uh, critics of the left were on the left what one time. Yeah, yeah. They 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 see it from they're they're not they're not just coming at it with a caricature of it. Uh, they're coming at it from people who were passionately con committed to it um, 
they were the ones who were running with it at full steam, and they're the ones who become disenchanted with its its limits and its hypocrisies. And I think I think you see that with uh, El Yol here. And um, and so one of the things he's getting at in, in a lot of his work um, is something we've talked about a lot on our sh- our previous shows of kind of what I will call the, the angelic line of modernity. Um, this notion that from from Descartes on, you have this notion that the human being, through their instrumental rationality, which is really just a form of reason serving our wishes and our will. <laughs> Um, has been able to understand the natural world and our body and everything physical, if you will, um, and really our psychological worlds, if not spiritual worlds, in a way that we are able to gain control over them increasingly, more and more, to the point that it is has basically become what he tends to call technological society. It's sort of a system a mechanistic system in which everything is increasingly made um, by humans, the product of humans, and therefore can be continuously made and remade by humans to where the humane itself starts to become eclipsed, if not, um, if not done away with. And there isn't a problem with it in this, in this, this March. Yeah. He was the first guy that introduced to me the notion that technique in terms of a program yeah. or social or sort of uh, organization is a kind of technology. It's, it's the application of technological thinking or kind of, as you noted, instrumental reason upon human beings to, to master and control them. Yeah. And so there's your, your kind of technological society. There's your propaganda. He, he is seeing the encroachment into Basically, he sees it as a totalitarian system and that that really the only pet place to run um, is not a good place either. <laughs> and that's really where this book, this book is going to come down to. But if, if we could position it into previous discussions we've had, Eliel, for his own in his own way and at his own time, is aware that there are contradictions in the modern world that are a, an abandonment of the riches and goods that Christianity, in its engagement with the Hellenic world, gave us. And his frustration is that this is a distorted perversion um, episode of it, like we've talked about, where it splits into to several different polarities. Well, this is one of the polarities that is on the rise and for him the most threatening because it is the most totalitarian, especially because it can utilize science and technology to to basically build its own Tower of Babel. And again, this can be mixed with the transhumanism, the materialist line very easily as well. So I think most of what he has to say about about the idealist scientism um, it would apply to that as well. Now, his, his method or hermeneutic um, in terms of how he, he sought to address it um, was indebted to neo-orthodoxy or dialectical theology that was fashionable at the time. And that may be worth explaining to our audience for those who don't understand that kind of world. But uh, really, a reaction against theological liberalism arose within the academic mainline traditions of Christianity, especially coming out of Germany um, and, and uh, probably Germany more than anywhere else. 
And uh, a lot of them had embraced certain aspects of modernity, um, higher critical methods and applications to scripture. Um, and, and for the most part, they, they kind of, they embrace that on the, on the, on the level of natural sciences, they embrace that as its own kind of autonomous sphere um, to which Christianity could have its own autonomous sphere, the revelatory or the spiritual. And these things never really had to even be harmonized. They were, you know, they, which, whichever one you tended to opt into was going to be the perspective you would run with. Um, and so you do have an oppositional relation develop between divine revelation and the scriptures versus the kind of what natural humans can come up to in their fallen state through the natural sciences. Um, and so there is a dualism and the, the dialectical theologians for the most part did not try to synthesize those because they did recognize they were at odds. Um, the, the, the world of scientism, the world of naturalism, um, they were distortions of, of original Christian insight, and they went their own way. So to attempt to kind of absorb them into a biblical picture was just wrongheaded for these. So these are kind of what you, would, you could call, though this is a slang and it's not fair, but biblical positivists. Um, those that will you know, talk about sort of the revelation of God communicated through the witness of Scripture um, that basically offers a a truth that we need to read the whole of reality from versus try to synthesize it with fallen wisdom or humanity. If you see in the background of this an opposition between kind of reason and revelation or an opposition between the Greek, Hellenic, pagan categories versus the biblical categories, that is going on in some ways. And so Eliel will, will himself embrace a embrace that to some degree, though he's, he's much richer and less oppositional at points. But, but I think that, you know, we have, so we've talked about in other shows, this is a, a development that loses touch with a way of, of thinking that didn't have that kind of approach. That's so, right. So, for example, uh, when I talk to people who have a very high regard for Scripture, it's almost as though they have uh, a kind of uh, opposition, not to modern understandings of nature, yeah. but to nature itself, and that yeah. there's no, there's no relationship between nature and scripture, yeah. uh, and it's as though scripture has to be sort of imposed on nature, as though it was a cookie cutter, and that, but it but it breaks down internally because so much of scripture is drawing on, you know you know, things that we experience in nature. You just think about the 19th Psalm, you know, that's yeah. all about, um, you know, the, the glory of God being, uh, you know, his praises being sung yeah. by the creation. Yeah. Then, then you have scripture there as well. Yeah. yeah. And they're not, in a, they're not at odds at all. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're saying the same thing or they're in chorus or they're in harmony with each other. Well, one, one of the more, I want to use the word annoying but it's probably overstating it a bit. But one of the things that I find annoying about this is the juxtaposition of Hebrew ways of thinking versus Greek ways of thinking. Yeah. As if the person who says that actually knows how ancient Hebrews and ancient Greeks thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, on some level, I understand how you can get there. Um, yeah. And it, 
actually through language yeah. more than anything else. Uh, Greek is a very analytic, precise kind of language. Hebrew is much more atmospheric in some ways. Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, I understand how you can get there, but but that opposition just strikes me as being utterly inappropriate when you're dealing with scriptures that are written in both Hebrew and Greek. Yeah, well, that and, and the Greek in the New Testament is able both to run with the meaning from the Old Testament Hebrew, yet also use the enrichment of the Greek to communicate it into that milieu. Um, you know, and so, I mean, that and, was... Mm-hmm. And, and many of these people were able to operate in both of those linguistic traditions, yeah. spheres, uh, pretty freely. I'm working with my church now, taking them through the last days of the Apostle Paul and, and Acts. And there's this, this point uh, where in this 22nd chapter, uh, Paul stands up and begins to address... Uh, the people in the temple uh, in Hebrew, and everybody gets very quiet to listen to what he has to say. Uh, then he's interacting with the tribune, and, the, and he asks the tribune, I think he, he asks the tribune, or the tribune asks him, can you speak Greek? And immediately they shift into Greek. So, yeah. so, yeah. so these are people yeah. who, who uh, were working from the inside of both of these languages in the first century. Many of, many of them far more sophisticated than I think we assume uh, to be the case. That's, that's right. And, and I think what Eliel didn't have, you know, it, it wasn't on offer here, uh, was a classical Christian vision. I mean, he, he was aware and he actually favored the way in which Christianity brought also those riches that, that Western culture um, had embraced from the pagan world, but reworked within a Christian metaphysical structure. So he did recognize, for him though, I think after voluntarism, because if you notice, his his too is a voluntaristic response. It is taking basically biblical revelation as where we take our commitment and running with that in contrast to where scientism has run with its commitment. This is why we're going to see in a little while, he doesn't have much rational hope he doesn't have much hope for resolving this because he knows it's on the level of, of willed commitment that is kind of given over. And so this is kind of sadly where you end up once volunt. That's why I always say that the, the, the Christian answer today in terms of addressing these matters cannot just repackage our biblical worldview in the voluntarist nominalist frame. And I use that category the way I, I've described it for a long time. That's so let, 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 let mm-hmm. me just stop there, uh, yeah. uh, Tom, and, and try to, I guess, uh, flesh this out a little bit for the listeners. What I'm hearing you say is that um, this approach to sort of thinking about reason instrumentally and its relationship to our wills mm-hmm. is something that both Christians and non-Christians are, are engaged in right now. Yeah. And that... The reason why Elul is despairing is because he sees kind of our voluntarist, uh, instrumentalist approach uh, losing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 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 that's not really what reason is. In that's other words, right. <laughs> reason and, is actually something that exists outside our heads, and it yeah. will prevail. And so we can actually be, in, you know, in the midst of uh, this cultural disaster confident that reason will prevail because reason has a divine origin in God. Well, that's right. Reason properly understood, not the rationalism that has been the result of the break 
but actually the way when, when God and God's reality as Christians understand it is the first truth, right? For understanding all of reality. Then when we understand creation, not in opposition to God, reason, not in opposition to God, um, and human being in action, not in opposition to God, but actually the plane on which we enact our creatureliness towards God as its ultimate fulfillment, then we don't have these conflicts. Now, sin is the conflict, but sin is not addressed by 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 the the oppositions between faith and reason per se. It's addressed differently, and so th- there is a place for the opposition, but it's not there. And I, I'll get back to that, um, but. The Christian, classic Christian vision, um, really a lot of these problems arise as you move away. The pitting of one aspect of reality over against the next um, and and not ordering them properly. And so this would have been very foreign to someone like Augustine. This wouldn't have made sense that, because he would have understood, like you said, rationality is not autonomous in the sense that it can run apart from its absolute dependency on the mind of God in order towards truth. So it isn't destructive and towards tearing down the fabric of creation or anything else. That's when sin gets involved and wants to turn it in on it and, again, impose the fallen will on things. And so um, and so I think that's where it kind of Eliel is. But his solution at that time was not kind of to re, reorient us back to you know, God is first truth and the classic Christian, you know, metaphysical vision and the redemption of philosophy through Christ, his is more to, to posit a revelatory biblicism over against, over against the kind of uh, the running away from it. And again, it, it illuminates a lot of things because scripture always does, um, but it doesn't allow for I, I think it doesn't give him much hope that he can go too much further with it other than just praying that it will not return void. <laughs> yeah, all you need yeah. to do is read his epilogue there and you get the sense <laughs> that this guy is, is, is just despairing. Yeah, well, he is French. Um, <laughs> um, the, the, the thing that is really important here is that historically Christians have always recognized a role for both reason and revelation. Yeah. You know, revelation tells us more about the invisible world, but also something about the visible. Reason is mostly about the visible world, but also the invisible. Yeah. Um, you know, that they've, they've always been held together. Well, historically, they had always yeah. been held together. Um, this, this goes back to God writing two books, the metaphor from the Middle Ages. He's got the book of Scripture and the book of nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, both of them are actually really revelation, but the tool and the question is how, what tools do you use to approach them? Well, that's right. In creation is, is, you know, the old term is theophanic. It manifests in its uniqueness and distinctness in every creaturely kind something of the glory of God in its own way. And so therefore participates in the intelligibility of the, you know, the, the, uh, the incarnate, you know, reason that governs and has made all things. And it finds its own fulfillment in that. So it's ordered. It's teleological. It's directed. Um, and so nature itself is, is full, not merely of symbols, um, but of its own inherent intelligibility, both as a distinct kind of creature that manifests the glory of God its own way and in doing so manifests its own creatureliness towards its perfection the same way. And so science makes sense 
um, in a healthy way in the Christian vision. You see why it is given rise to, and there shouldn't have been a conflict. Um, but again, we've talked about kind of those those moves to where the the kind of once the view of God shifts to where God is sort of imposing an intelligibility on things as being seen as a, a, a ultimate will more than anything else. Well, then the creation, in order to have its own integrity, it is either sheerly going to be determined in conformity to that will um, or run its own way. And so that becomes some of the conflict. Um, and, and so Eliel's talking about a, you know, a world in which it wants to run its own way, right? So it runs revelation and God out of the picture in order for it to have its own you know, plane of reality unhindered, if you will. And, you know, and if you will, I guess is a way, a good way of putting it. So at the heart of this book um, is uh, not only a, a sort of a sober assessment um, of Western civilization. And what I mean by sober assessment is he is not someone who basically is is waving a flag called Western civilization. All is good. He is kind of left-leaning by a lot of, uh, you know, the comparisons we would use today, although that's changing. Um, he, I mean, it may be the, the, just, well, I, I don't need to get in that now, but he, he, he also would be someone who was fully aware and has went over and over again with the limits of Western civilization as its failures. And he'll say, like every civilization, it has its long list. So he doesn't skip around or over that, nor is he sort of, you know, sort of, is, is it just like Western civilization is it and no one else matters. Um, as a matter of fact, he would see part of what was bequeathed to Western civilization through Christianity and its, its um, redeeming of, 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 you know, Western philosophy and like is it's in its rich view that all human beings um, universally share in the dignity of humanness made in the image of God and therefore, um, have have gift to offer, so he's not he's not kind of overselling the West. <laughs> but I, I I do love the uh, first paragraph in the epilogue. Let me let me yeah. just read it because <laughs> I think it expresses what you're saying. He yeah. says, "So this is a lul. I love <laughs> the West despite <laughs> its vices and crimes. Yeah. I love the vision of the prophets and the grace of the Parthenon, Roman order and the cathedrals." reason and the passionate longing for freedom. I love the perfection of Western rural landscapes. That's an interesting statement there. Yeah. The measure inherent in all it has produced, the great goals it has set for itself. I love the West. Then he goes on to say in the next paragraph, there is no need to remind me of the <laughs> minds of Lorium uh, and the crucifixion of slaves and the massacre of Aztecs and the state of the Inquisition. I know all about them, but I also know that despite all those things, the history of the West is not a history of unrelieved criminality and that uh, what the West has given to the world weighs infinitely more in the scales than it has done to societies and individuals. Now, I don't know uh, how, you know, uh, of many intellectuals today who would say amen to those lines. I think and then he gets into that. He gets yeah. into um, uh, kind of the self-destruction of the West. And this is so the betrayal of the West is a lot like the suicide of the West, the, 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 another yeah. book. But, the, yeah. the, but this is the kind of the thing. And then he gives us um, three different, uh, I guess, movements or tendencies 
that he yep. sees at work. I'd love to get into those. I don't know if you were planning to do that. Yeah, Tom. yeah. I'm, I'm uh, going to kind of go ahead, Glenn. Actually, be, before we get to those, there, there is an observation I, I wanted to make. What, every culture throughout history that I'm aware of had its critics within within itself. Yeah. Western culture, it seems to me, is unique in that in its overall embrace of the critics. Yeah. You know, in, in Rome or China or whatever, you get these isolated people that, that we see, but there's no broad acceptance or broad embrace of their, of their criticism. Western society, it seems to me, has had a unique capacity over the last century, and it's really only in about that period of time that we're talking about, yeah. has had a unique capacity to internalize the criticisms of itself in a way that was really not done anywhere else. I suspect, but I'm not sure, I suspect the reason for that is a holdover from Christianity. That, in fact, the idea of original sin, which is used so often with respect to slavery by people who do not understand what original sin is, um, the, the, but, but that, that holdover of that, or the holdover in America, particularly of Calvinism via the Puritans, and the idea of total depravity, it, it leaves us in a, a situation, I think, where we are uniquely willing to embrace criticism of ourselves. In the past, this has had positive effects where you see reform movements and things like that embraced in society. You can think of Victorian England or uh, prior to that Wilberforce and company. But Today, unmoored from a biblical perspective, it leaves us vulnerable to a kind of self. Well, he describes it as self-flagellation. Yeah, um, that that it, that is really uh, that is. I don't think it's precedented in history where where you've got this kind of embrace in a society of of such a negative view. And frankly, I'm with Alul on this. I don't know if you can survive it. I don't know if this society can survive. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that are at the the kind of heart of this shift to in the West, I mean, if you know, I remember an article some years ago in First Things, and it, I think it was actually Bentley Hart in his better days on Christ and nothingness. But one of the things he was talking about is this modern distorted notion of freedom, this nihilistic notion that that Eliel is talking about in this uh, in it towards its destructive end. In which basically it believes nothing but its own choice and its its own freedom, but it has no. There's nothing about it that is anchored in any nature that 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 qualifies it, like its own good nature, its own being made in the image of God, its own being a creature. It's not made in. It's not governed by anything, and it's oriented. I mean, in its own in its own mind, base or in its own act. Um, but it's it's directed only sheerly towards what the will wants at that that moment. There is no telos, and so if you have no natures to enact and no good towards which they're enacting, then you have what you'll see here: this directionless, um, almost hatred for anything that tries to become a nature or an end that you did not choose for yourself. Yeah, I think this is. Uh, there are a number of things about this that are, that are interesting to me. One, one of those is uh, kind of the, the sort of the moment that we find ourselves in with Tolkien. Um, so everybody wants to to rework Tolkien to serve their particular agenda. No one really wants to dig into Tolkien to to learn something. 
<laughs> you, yeah, know, you know what yeah. I'm saying? So yeah. that's the thing that we're all commiserating about with regard to, um, you know, that Amazon series and now the latest revelations about Warner Brothers buying <laughs> the rights to make their own films. We all we all kind of fear what's going to happen with this. It's going to be the avatarization of, of Tolkien. There's going to be some kind of weird agenda that's pursued, um, and there's no interest in in kind of digging into what might already be present there that would be uh, along the lines of what we're talking about. Another thing that comes to mind in all this is, you know, we t- we've talked about creation and its integrity and significance, uh, but even when volunteerism had sort of won uh, the day, you still had a strong conviction about the providence of God yeah. ordering things to their yeah. proper ends. That, that, now that's gone. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, we don't we don't uh, name cities uh, Providence anymore. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, but really, in our society, we don't believe there are any proper ends. So how can you orient anything toward them? There aren't any. And as the, that's right, that's right. And as the system grows of like Donovan said, the way we, we are, we produce more and more and, and, and see ourselves directing things through our technology and our aims our you know, our imposition of our will, we don't see anything higher governing anything, uh, much less like you say, towards any fulfillment of our nature. You know, basically if you think of the, the, the notion of the voluntarist God is simply able spontaneously out of the fullness of will generate what it wants. We're kind of like micro versions of that. And so because of that, that's the, that's the only real thing dry. This is, I think what worries Elul. <laughs> that's the only thing driving this. And this thing is not aimed towards what, what is his line on the first one? He says, um, no one in the West is, able any longer to believe in the special vocation and special greatness of the Western world. Another, that hangover that Chris was talking about, that providence was a part of, that there is some kind of, there is a kind of reality and an orientation to the good, that has been basically pulled out as this one wing, I I would say, of, of the contraries of the modern world present yeah. themselves it'd be it'd be, it'd be it wouldn't have been a bit great to 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 see a little address ai because i think that ai is sort of the the long shot it's the it's the it's the aspiration to create a god who providentially orders our world for us because we've lost faith in the one uh that has been revealed to us now we want to create one so th- because we we don't trust each other I mean, none of us uh, are, are in a position of, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. Everybody's full of suspicion. Everybody's yeah. everybody's yeah. concerned about somebody getting away with something at their yeah. expense. And so yeah. what we want is we want a God like uh, a super intelligent computer that's ordering all things in such a way that we don't need to worry about people taking advantage of this anymore. I, I think that's driving this whole AI thing at a subconscious level. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that you, you have to end up there as one of the options as the technology becomes available if you're not going to end up completely destroying everything. I mean, this is kind of, and, and that's its own way of destroying some things. Um, let, let, maybe we can get there because I think the repetition section is is very important to addressing that. But um, I think back uh, the second uh, page 194, the, the ones we're dealing with, he talks about kind of the doom 
um, he goes, we are caught up in a kind of doom from which it seems nothing can rescue us, right? And so I think at this point, technology and even the, the you know, transhumanism in his mind, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know that it was in his imagination at that point, but it really wouldn't be a solution because you're still locked into the mechanism in his mind. Um, but he's, I, he goes, even the disciples of Christ are rushing headlong to destruction. I think uh, very insightful. Only the rejection of everything Western, of everything the man the West has produced, can now satisfy the very men of the West. Throughout Europe and America, we're watching a kind of mystery unfold. We're swept along in a vast procession of flagellants who slash at each other and themselves with the most horrendous of whips. Um, you go down a little bit. He goes, we even scourge ourselves hysterically for crimes we did not commit. You know, and you see this, you know, you see this now with the CRT trying to get certain people to absolve themselves for being guilty of crimes, you know, maybe previous generations of. And even if there is, some, you know, but there's also this notion that some people can, by being critical of the West, can somehow transcend it and not being morally guilty of of its its negatives if they just basically ally themselves the right way. Um, yeah, and the, the way this pr- proceeds, I just wrote something for World Magazine that hopefully will be published on uh, J.K. Rowling and the the the, the, the TERFs, the, the the trans-exclusive radical feminists. Basically what that means is just women who are feminists who believe that women are real and men are real. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's, uh, it's so, uh, <laughs> but now, now Rowling and women who agree with her are now uh, among the privileged. So <laughs> they, they have joined white men uh, in the sort of the ranks of the people that are people who are safe to completely condemn. Uh, and yeah. that's what has occurred to her. She's been canceled. Uh, I mean, even the people who became famous playing characters that she wrote about in films don't want to be seen in the same room with her. Yeah. And wh- and why? Just because she's unwilling to go along with the insanity. She's just said, hey, I'm a feminist. I even outed one of my characters as gay. <laughs> but but I do believe never, that there is such a thing as <laughs> that's never good enough. I do believe yeah. that there are men and women and that that's is real. So I, I got to throw this story in. I, I ran into this a week or two ago. The, the thing about I, I like about Joe Rowling is she is, I mean, I disagree with her on a lot of points, but she is absolutely unapologetic about what she believes and she is going to you know stand for it. And at one point, somebody on, I don't know whether it was Twitter or somewhere, posted something that basically called her a Nazi. And she replied, send my greetings to your solicitor, <laughs> which, to, to quote the article I read, is, is British speak for you're about to be nuked from space. <laughs> um, what that means is she was going to take him to court yeah, yeah. Uh, for libel, because Britain has very strong libel laws. Yeah, yeah. And the guy immediately started backpedaling and dropping apologies and all of this kind of thing publicly, uh, recanting his statement and everything else. She, yum, she, she played that really well. I've got to say, I rather admired that. <laughs> well, and, 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 but the interesting thing is you have this, you know, what you get with all these episodes is this unqualified identity 
of Western civilization, which is a very comprehensive uh, in what it covers, to simplistic um, distortions or uh, parts of its failure, which are the byproducts of its extremes, like Nazism or colonization, whatever term they want to give to it. Um, the first thing that they're missing is those are deviations from probably the highest points of Western civilization. They're a rejection of its fullest vision. They are, they are the byproduct of, of bad theological alternatives, which happen when you mix, when you, when you rip the kind of harmonious universe of the classic paganism and you spill, spill into it a view of omnipotence uh, ripped from the other rests of the character of God. So you get a cocktail of violence that becomes a distorted picture of what the West, what gave the West its great things, like he lists earlier, a concept of freedom unheard of in the world, a concept of the use of rationality and the development of literature and the arts and music unheard of in the world, the notion of the dignity of humanity as participating in a universal image of God, but also with their own individual dignity. These things are the things that end up getting distorted and they end up getting undermined as that distortion happens. And so this is where exactly if, if someone can't cannot discern the difference between Roland and a Nazi, one is already I mean, beyond and they're they're caught in the doom of this. There isn't you know, I see why he is, you know, he's doom and gloom right now because rationality um, on its own foot is unable to reach these types. Well, this is what he says right there, you know, in that epilogue. He, he gives us three movements. <laughs> yeah. He says, the first is that of blind negation. Yeah. A retreat in un, uh, into unqualified negation of all the West has been and can yet be. Some of its embodiments, the frenzied pleasure in destroying and rejecting <laughs> and playing the man without a future or the artist without culture, the sadism <laughs> Of intellectual of the intellectual who tears language his own language to pieces and does does not want to say anything further because in fact there is nothing to say uh, the explanation of words because there are no more uh, there is no more communication no more communication yeah all this you know his his point and then I guess the thing is to so one thing about this that is depressing this was published in seventy eight you said yeah. Yeah. So nothing's new under the sun. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're dealing with some some things that have been uh, plaguing us for a while. Uh, I think that the only difference between that time and our time is the fact that people uh, more broadly have become aware of what has happened. Uh, C.S. Lewis was mourning the death of the West and the abolition of man in 19, was it 48? Yeah. And you can go further back. I mean, so it's it's as though finally the people who are watching, you know, uh, CNN and Fox News have caught on to what <laughs> those of us who, you know, because they used to just write us off as people who were out of touch with reality, ivory tower types, you know, people who didn't actually have to work for a living. Now, now they're feeling it. <laughs> yeah. Now well, everybody course, is feeling it. Chris, one connection or correction, excuse me. Nobody is watching CNN. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Right, I, I stand corrected. <laughs> and, uh, a quick, a quick thing to note here too is is it, one will miss 
what Eliel is up to, if one thinks of the kind of um, leftist uh, nihilist that he's talking about, reaction is merely to classic Christianity. Actually, that person has no clue of what classic Christianity is. What they're reacting to is the system, the way in which under the name of Christianity and Western civilization, a, a alternative, weaker vision of it became a very strong vision. That's what we get with the Enlightenment and its grounding of things the way it does and, and its more extreme forms start to show themselves. And so what you have here is the over-rationalizing of the world, the mechanistic vision that everything is a basic machine and you're a part of it. And, and he even notes here, he talks about their despair. This is why they react to everything about it is because in some ways they see it as it's crushing their creatureliness, whether they know it or not. I mean, this is some of the postmodern reaction, even these people who just anything that triggers them is, is their only way of making sense of how do I have a dignified space, if you will, uh, my own nihil to, to jump out of my own void if this is taking over everything. So he has this thing here where he talks about all the painters and they all try to negate society. And then he says um, they feel caught in an inescapable dilemma since even their irrationality serve as compensation for the system and thus become part of it. So there's this deeper hatred for it because they can't get themselves out of being a part of it, no matter how much they ally. Yeah, this is an interesting thing to like reflect on because there was a time where, you know, being a sellout was like uh, a, a, a real, uh, ac- you know, sort of terrible thing to be called. Now I think everybody wants to be bought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, all these influencers, all these people, they, they, yeah. they're basically saying, you know, just make sure, uh, well, make me an offer. That's basically what they're saying. Make me an offer. You, you, you can discover my price if you if you go high enough. Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, getting getting back to to the epilogue there, he gets to the second one. I don't know if you were thinking about getting this there, but I, I'm fascinated by this. Okay, one, one more thing, Chris. The, the idea of negation here ties in with things we've talked about before from Philip Reith, death works, yeah. anti-culture, all of those Absolutely. kinds of things. I just want yeah. to make that connection here because it's really, Elul's taking it in a bit of a different direction, yeah. but it's very, very similar conceptually. That's, well, that, that's actually, I get into that a little bit in my, in my editorial, hopefully, which will be published by World. By the time this comes out, we'll know. <laughs> but <laughs> but what I, what I uh, propose in World is that feminism was just, a mo- was, was just a phase in a much greater negation. What feminism, yeah. fe- feminism served its purpose. It's been thrown to the side of the road. And now the, the next phase of a kind of the process of negation is the negation of the body, period, male and female. Uh, yeah. it's, it's the return to zero. That's what we want. Uh, that's why the TERFs, the trans, you know, radical, uh, you know, or trans. Trans exclusionary radical, radical feminists. Yeah, right. That's why they're <laughs> now part of the, 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 yeah. the you know, the, the, the white male privilege world. Well, it has to, I mean, his next line on 196, he says, uh, in order, again, in order to not be absorbed by, quote unquote, the system, um, you to to kind of avoid this kind of absorption by the system, it is found necessary to radicalize endlessly all positions, all projects, all oppositions. 
But in radicalizing in this obsessive manner, all these people are effectively doing is destroying. And there's your death works, your third world culture, you know, for reef. Um, First and foremost, the very thing that they should be saving and preserving, the fragile remnants of what is an auth- was authentic in our world, in our time, the things that should be carefully preserved as a possible starting point for a whole new hope are actually the very grounds they're, they're undermining for, for anything but destruction. Right. Well, the second of the, of the movements he, he gets to on page 197, and it's yep. movement without direction. So there's no tell us. Yeah. Yeah. So you, how do you know you're progressing? It's because you're moving. But, but how do you know you're progressing if there's no sort of like, uh, you know, closing in on the goal? Well, it, you, 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 they've given up on that. That's just simply uh, kind of giving oneself over to speed. Our speed is, content, is constantly increasing. It, yeah. matter, it matters not whither we are going. We, uh, yeah, we are rushing with, uh, we are, we are rushing nowhere at an incredible increasing speed. If that reminds me, I don't know if you remember the old, uh, kind of Christian alt folk artist, Mark Hurd, who wrote that song, oh, yeah. freight, freight train to nowhere. <laughs> that is, this is exactly where he gets it. He's basically that we're basically heading full speed ahead to nowhere. Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and he has this horrible dream, right. That, you know, uh, you and me, we know too much is it's basically a, a, a a summation of this, but that line we're rushing nowhere at an ever increasing speed is brilliant. And so, well, and then he, he kind of moves to where this goes and he says, uh, our speed is constantly increasing. So it doesn't matter where we're going. It's the speed itself of transforming things and, and negating them. We're caught up in a madness. This is where you're kind of Dionysian dance and hi, uh, hybrids, uh, hybrids of the dance of death. The important thing is the dance, the Saturnalia, the Bacchanalia, the Lupercalia. We are no longer worried about what will emerge from it or about the void to which it points. We are content to die of dancing. Right. right. We have people right now Googling a bunch of different, you know, classical uh, festivals that uh, were exercises in giving yourself over to the most destructive passions imaginable. Yeah. 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 And that you, you see a return and you see, I mean, you see it also in all this endless, uh, you know, diversity and um, pride parades, right? This, this, this display of that, which has no significant teleology or fulfillment of any good or natures other than the sheer celebration that somehow these voices we're not allowed for any civilizational reason to have a voice, as if that makes, in many cases, it depends on what the issue was, right? Um, to where just celebration for celebration's sake, that now people have license to do and express whatever they want. Yeah, give themselves over to whatever passions they, that, are, that are the strongest in them. Yeah, and the most extreme examples of that would be things like the Folsom Street Fair in San Francisco, which openly celebrates not just, you know, uh, uh, homosexual relationships, but all kinds of increasingly severe perversions and things like that that just are, are on public display. And, yeah. and he, he interestingly has a little, ta- a little take on some of the ecstatic extremes of the charismatic movement. <laughs> I don't know if you saw but he yeah. saw that as, as very similar. He says, in the churches, the preaching of the word has been replaced by the flutterings of ecstasy. Uh, 
ecstasy, not the drug here. <laughs> and when someone falls into a trance, that is regarded as proof of spiritual authenticity. So he's already marking this kind of um, this kind of uh, place at which a, a, a mystical substitute, not in the in the full rich mystical traditions anchored in the container of the church and its theology, but one actually marks spiritual authenticity. And this move towards experience itself, in a way, can oftentimes become Gnostic in negation, negating the embodied forms of, of scripture and sacrament. So there, there is something telling there as well. Um, again, I, I, it, maybe that's unfair, but I think I see what, I see what he's kind of reaching towards with, with that. You know, he gets the same with this, you know, socialism and, and uh, the different kind of uh, struggles. Um, but he basically sees it as a nihilistic revolution and it has succeeded. And and I, I think, he, you know, he's a, one of, of many insightful um, figures that saw the nihilistic roots of the shift in Western society. I mean, that's what Michael Gillespie's whole work was on the theological origins of, of the modern West was that at the heart of it, this, this voluntaristic conception ripped from any way in which, which uh, reason functioned in any way other than expression merely of, of an arbitrary will. I mean, he's being, you know, um, but how that starts to take off in all these directions and only leaves so many options, it's that nihilistic seed. He, another book by Gillespie is called Nihilism Before Nietzsche, and it's tracking a similar, uh, a similar tread that, that this was this was at the heart of this kind of freedom, both for God, creatures, nature, history, that when it severed itself from you know the other attributes, if you will, and ran on its own, has has nothing governing it and has nothing that is really ordered to. I, I rather like the last paragraph in this section. The, the nihilistic revolution has succeeded. Today's political activists who still claim to be revolutionaries have nothing to put nihilism's place. Movement for movement's sake, thorough study for the study's sake, the revolution for the revolution's sake. That, they say, is the only way to escape the system. It is a rem remarkable thing, however, that this system renders mad not only those who are part of it, but those who reject it as well. The system is now the god who makes men mad. But it is a God we have created with our own minds. Wow. Right. Yeah. And, what, and what follows that is this third uh, movement, yeah. which is worth reflecting on, because have you noticed that nothing original comes out of Hollywood anymore? Uh, we just keep getting yeah. remakes of stuff. Well, this yeah. kind of ex expresses that. He says the third of the three movements is that of repetitiveness within the acceleration. There's, there's really nothing uh, that we can look at here and say, wow, there's a breakthrough. There's something that's a sign of life. There's something that we can draw some encouragement uh, from. We just want to uh, relive maybe uh, something that we've known before with a slightly different sort of taste. Or I, I actually think what we want to relive is it, it can move in two directions. Either we want to retreat into the past into a kind of infantile nostalgia or we want to um, somehow smear the past uh, yeah. and uh, degrade it. Um, yeah. That's what I think what we, I, I think that's where, I think that's what the danger is right now with Tolkien. I think that uh, the, the rights 
to the intellectual body of work uh, when it comes to film is now in the hands of people who want to take Tolkien's work and drain it of its transcendental power. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I think that's what you have is re- remaking it, I mean, you know, just to use, you know, my own f- way of putting the frame of reference, it wants to give just one more, you know, um, one more reiteration of the nihilistic frame and its negations of anything to do with, you know, civilization, but Western civilization in particular. Um, and so it continuously beats the drum and does the mantra of, the same sets of, uh, you know, ideas, positions. I mean, it's, the university has been so disgustingly banal for so long. It's the same thing. It, you'd have to take endless, um, it's just, it, it, it controls the arts. It controls, I, I was watching, um, they used to do, uh, what was the Lutheran College used to have on PBS, the, um, uh, St. Olaf's. St. Olaf's used to do the be- beautiful Christmas, uh, tradition they would play on pbs every year well i noticed it wasn't on there this year and i found the site and was like okay i kind of listened to this and watched the concert and this year it was filled with uh purple-haired people carrying their flags down it was it was and it was just a series of songs outside of kind of anything to do with uh classical christian western um you know Christmas, you know, that, that part, fine. Uh, I think Western civilization is always open to the variety of human expressions and song of Christianity. What we have going on here, though, is this reiteration um, of the same theme over and over again with the same points of, of reference. And, and uh, it's really just doing it for its own sake. Yeah, actually, I, I, I want to uh, I, I don't think that that's exactly right. I think that what's happening is Chris is right. We are getting this sort of repetitive thing going on where this we got the same things over and over again. But we have to combine that with the first one, that everything is about negation. Yeah. So they repeat things, but they repeat them in a way that deliberately distorts them and moves them away from their original intent because they want to reject everything that the culture that produced them was about. True. So yeah. we get Christmas concerts with no reference to Jesus or yeah. no reference to the incarnation or classical thought. We get Tolkien reimagined for modern society. Yeah. Well, excuse yeah. me, if I want to go to Middle Earth, I won't, don't want to be in modern society. Yeah. I want to yeah. be in Middle Earth. Yeah. You know, we, we get we get all of these kinds of things that are designed to to degrade what is there, the good, the true and the beautiful and to reduce it to terms that appeal to us in our sort of nihilistic mood right now. Yeah, there's a there's a line here that's really helpful at the at the in the the, at the bottom of page 199 where he's uh, addressing this repetitiveness. He says this inability to innovate. Yeah. Except by ringing the changes on signs not symbols, this would be good for us to reflect on a little bit hmm. in terms of distinguishing science from symbols, is for me a proof that the end of the West is upon us, the end of reason, the end of self-awareness and self-criticism, the end of freedom, the end of the individual. Now, I think that many of the people who are bringing about the end of the West would say they're doing it for the sake of the individual, but they're doing it in such a way that the individual is increasingly subject to the forces of power and control 
that they ostensibly say they're against. But I do think he's on to something here with this distinction between signs and symbols. So how I'm reading him here, maybe he gets into this earlier in the book. It's, it's, I, I've not read the book. I've only read the epilogue. So a sign, it has a referent, something yeah. that you're, you're referring to. A symbol is something you enter into and participate in. So like when we think about, say, uh, a Christmas uh, uh, festival, you're entering into the symbols. Um, but signs have a more kind of, uh, I think that the signs are, are more, that they, what distinguishes a sign from a symbol is a sign can be separated from the thing it signifies. Whereas a symbol is so, I guess, connected to the, the, the reality itself that you can't do that. Is that does that make sense? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think you hit it on the head on the, the the second half of that. I don't think it's so much that we can enter into a symbol; it's that the symbol itself participates in that which right. it symbolizes. Yeah, I think that's right. Whereas right. the sign. Uh, as he's using the words here, I assume the sign is just simply something that points to something else, whereas yeah. the symbol participates in it. Yeah, I think that's right. Yep, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And that's why he talks about earlier the way in which, um, you know, human freedom, w which inherited from uh, the, the, you know, I think the earlier uh, Christian contribution was not was not on premise and therefore wasn't simply about license and simply to to do as you please um, and redefine as you please, auto-create and the like. And this has sort of become, if you say there is an end, um, that has become the, the kind of explicit one, which is really the, the whole point of it all is just to celebrate the sheer fact of giving ourselves the absolute freedom to do or define or be whatever we each as individuals are going to be um, except, of course, we know that can't happen. And so the nightmare that results with that is also a repeat. And for him, I think it's, it's the system become politicized. I mean, that, that's, you know, that, that's, if you will, Leviathan, but with total control through, through technological capacity. Um, and, I, you know, this is where, this is where, you know, I think the point of where it, there's no escape apart from I any mean, for at the end, he's looking for a transcendent breakthrough. Um, and I think for as a classic Christian, I, I think it is for Christians um, that we do have an alternative. And it comes from that rich vision that we were bequeathed from the church and, and, and its highest points of reflection. And we can rethink all of this. I'm not saying, though, the aim is pragmatic, that we're going to change minds and hearts. Um, I think, but but it is that truth for truth's sake is actually a transcendental that is worth pursuing, rather than just uh, you know the, these kind of pseudo transcendentals that have been the the nihilistic alternative. Yeah, that's a good point for us to wrap things up. We've got to that place where I think uh, we've uh, you know filled our time slot. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We really do appreciate everybody who contributes to the show on an ongoing basis. And you can be one of those contributors. We have a way for you to contribute in a monetary way through Patreon. Uh, we, of course, are grateful, too, for people who share the show with other folks, 
even people who pray for us and keep us uh, in mind when they think about, uh, you know, what's going on in the world and and the work that we are trying to do here in the promotion of the truth. So thank you for all the ways that you contribute to to the to our work. Um, we're grateful to the folks at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We're uh, also grateful for the folks at Trinity Reformed Church and their podcast network. Uh, these are folks who support us and help us get our shows distributed. So thank you for, for everybody who helps us along the way. And if you'd like to be, as I noted, a Patreon contributor, uh, there's a link in the show notes for that. Anyway, that's enough for now. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might also enjoy the new book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, now available on Amazon.